session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Jalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded then of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next week's shows is The Neuroscience of You by Chantel Pratt. The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours. And so this is uh, came out, I think, maybe two weeks ago. And I've read a lot of neuroscience books, but always like to hear new and different perspectives. So looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is An Indigenous Indigenous People's History of the United States. An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. And so uh, this book, which came out uh, maybe six, seven years ago, is giving an account of U.S. history, the history of the United States of America, but from the perspective, or at least uh, maybe I should say that way, adding the atrocities that were committed against the indigenous peoples of the United States um, in creating that history and creating this nation. And so uh, going back to my elementary school years, when we look at education, uh, me, uh, I was in school in the late 80s, early 90s in elementary school, uh, going to the 90s. And so I remember not learning a lot about the negative sides of things when it came to American history. It was the positives, even things like Columbus coming to the Americas or coming to America, even though it wasn't what's the United States of America was this wonderful thing. We all learned the the song uh, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue to remember that momentous and the way it was presented to us was all positive uh, aspects of American history. But uh, and, and even in later history classes, I didn't learn much about the negatives. I'd heard some things here and there. I was aware of some things. But to be honest, what I recall growing up in the United States was when people would bring up these things. It has some, For some people, they might have the same reaction. It's kind of this, oh, you're just trying to find the negative or look for something negative. But really, that's not the truth or that's not the reality. Uh, but when you read a book like this, and as I've gotten older and looked into things more and heard more about the atrocities and the horrible things that happened to the native people in all the Americas, but in the United States of America and what the United States government did, you see how uh, horrific it truly has been and continues to be. And so um, there's a lot of themes. So the book just goes into uh, not year by year, but period by period, chronologically of uh, before even the United States formed, but getting into the United States formation, and of course uh, how it became the 50 United States that we have uh, as a country now. Realizing that, of course, that wasn't how it initially started, and that might seem obvious, uh, but there is this sense that 
what the map is now is kind of what it was always destined to be, which of course echoes this mindset of manifest destiny. Uh, but the sense that this was the United States of America, this is what it is. Not realizing or not recognizing how many lives were lost, how many people were displaced of their land. Their land was stolen in, in a variety of ways and tactics outlined in the book. People were killed and massacred, including women and children and, in different ways, and just some horrible, horrible things that were done. And so when we want to try to understand the full history of the United States, we have to also recognize this aspect, which is an ugly one. We tend to try to avoid the ugly parts of our histories, whether it's personal or collective. Uh, but this is a very real reality of what um, was experienced and has been experienced for the indigenous peoples of the United States or in these territories, in these areas. And so, yeah, it was depressing because of that heartbreaking. You you know, it makes you angry, makes you sad, heartbroken, looking at these different uh, experiences and the things that uh, that was that were done and of course there are themes of what we consider racism or dehumanization that are a big part of all of these doctrines or these mindsets that somehow uh, we are the good people whoever that we is and there are these bad people or they're not even people they're savages or there's other words that were used to describe them as less than in some way and so it can be justifiable and sometimes the logic can be hard to Put in a causal order was it that the land was wanted and so they uh, came up with the reason why it was okay or was it that the people were seen as less than and so it was okay but both were probably true both contributed to that but we can see that just so many times throughout american history the people in power did just horrific horrific things essentially took land sometimes made unfair if you want to call them deals and treaties that sometimes were unfair to begin with, but also were very often not followed. And it's it's really heartbreaking and um, eye-opening to read it in such detail as was in this book, again, the, an indigenous people's history of the United States. And so, as I mentioned, manifest destiny, I'd heard that term before, which is uh, mixed with religious types of ideologies as well, but this mindset that the white people could conquer all the lands that they were all basically theirs and so we see this um the the concept of colonialism and the impact it had and what i found interesting as i was reading the book something it came to me in this way was uh, when we look at a lot of what people talk about in western civilization there's many factors that they consider but one of them is the importance even the sanctity of private property that private property is so important and and some even you know will argue that it's the cornerstone of civilization that you have to have property and private property to to create that and this is a big thing in in western civilization but what's interesting is the people and individuals who feel that private property is so important were taking land of others so easily or freely or felt that it was their destiny or they were allowed to. So taking land should seem like the most uncivilized thing you can do when you consider it so so much a part of civilization. But we see that happening time and time again in all of colonialism, but including what happened in, in the United States with the indigenous people, is that 
there was just this mindset that we can have it, but it, it's hard to reconcile that. And so we know that as humans, we're very good at doing mental gymnastics to justify whatever we want to do or whatever favors us or whatever thought belief we'd like to hold, we can be pretty good, unfortunately, at coming up with reasons, if you want to call them that, to make it okay. But somehow, uh, I'd never thought of it this way about, because I was in Thomas Piketty's books, he talks about how much there's a sanctity of of uh, private property, even to the point in such an ugly form that when countries have abolished slavery, uh, like in, in Haiti and in other uh, countries, when this happened with the French, the slave owners were paid money, were given money to make up for their quote-unquote lost property, which is just unbelievable to me. But that's uh, what was thought of as important. Private property was the most important thing. So you're losing property. Of course, uh, the owning of a person should never have been allowed to begin with. But because of that, you need to be compensated because that's the most important thing. But again, here, taking people's land somehow is justifiable because you're, you're supposed to or you can. And so we see um, many influential American politicians, even presidents, Andrew Jackson being very notorious for the things that he did. Uh, to the indigenous peoples during his time before even his presidency but during it as well and so this was a reminder to me again that we have to always be vigilant because people who are in power people who are considered great minds and great thinkers will often hold very very ugly beliefs um, but then because they have power and also because if they're considered intelligent or can use intelligent language and words, they can present those ideas or if they have the power, they can execute those ideas, but also present them in ways that make them seem really good. And, you know, you see this when you read about slavery and you hear the people who are pro-slavery, sometimes using very what we consider eloquent in the language itself, language to defend ugly and despicable ideologies or actions and so here in, in this book you see many quotes that she includes from different uh, politicians different people in power and they're often very very depressing and heartbreaking and you could just see the deep-seated white supremacy and the biases that are there uh, but one I, I wanted to share was coming from uh, a decision in the from the 1823 U.S. Uh, US Supreme Court decision for Johnson versus McIntosh, and so this is from Chief Justice John Marshall, and it relates to what uh, is called, and she talks about the doctrine of discovery. So this mindset that if you discover, which of course that needs to be in quotes, discover land. Uh, then it's yours somehow. And the reason why that's so uh, atrocious is that people live there. But when you say discover, it clearly means that certain people are the discoverers or the ones that can do these things and other people don't have that status. So this is from um, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall back in 1823. It was about uh, a decision related to property rights and things of that nature, and it's related to, again, discovery. So, quote, discovery gave title to the government by whose subjects or by whose authority it was made against all other European governments, which title might be consummated by possession. 
And so, you know, it's very wordy and it's very legalese and in legal language. Uh, but we could see that it sounds smart in a way, but basically it's kind of like finders keepers, but even not that it's like, uh, you know, we saw something even though people were there and now against all European governments. So to me, that means that those are the ones that also could have some legitimacy or they could have claim to the land. But basically it's like, well, we discovered it by being the first white people there. So it's ours. And sometimes they weren't even the first ones there, but they were there at that s some point and then took it. But so this is from the highest legal body of the United States back in 1823 and the chief justice of that body basically saying that because it was discovered essentially because they put a flag there then it's theirs so as um, uh, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz continues after that quote therefore European and Euro-American discoverers in quotes had gained real property rights in the lands of indigenous peoples by merely planting a flag and so again it's this mindset that's so backwards in so many ways but if you're saying private property and these things are so important then how can you just show up somewhere where people are living and just plant your flag and say this is ours now it really does not make sense to me um, other than for selfish greedy reasons and for a sense of supremacy white supremacy that we are somehow more powerful or we have the rights to everything essentially uh, only with other whites do we have to compete or actually pay attention to that so it's it's heartbreaking but it was the reality and continues to be and, and the book does a wonderful job of tracing the history but in the history it's not just about these isolated incidents or stories or experiences which of course it includes that but it also gets into the ideologies and mindsets white supremacy being a big one that still continue to this day to have effects and so it's similar to how we see with slavery in the United States and how that's affected black Americans and continues to affect black Americans, that it's not just the history of the United States, but continues to create and be part of the present. Similarly, for the indigenous peoples, we see uh, the experiences they've had to endure and continue to endure. Um, before I was reading this book, I saw a documentary on something else. It was actually on psychedelics, but at one point it was talking about, it was just showing something that was discussed in this book where uh, Native American children were sent to these boarding schools. And essentially it was, um, I think the quote is something like, to, to kill the Indian, but save the man, which shows that that is a bad part of who they are in their culture and that they're trying to civilize them. That was some of the, the type of ideology and wording that was used in these boarding schools. And it was really so heartbreaking because in this uh, documentary, it just showed a few images of uh, Indian children, Native American children before dressed and, and, and with their hair and their uh, clothing within the traditional of their uh, culture and then being quote unquote Americanized their hair short and dressed in what was considered the more Americanized clothing and it was just so sad because you saw so much of their individuality being stripped away and it's so sad that that was considered progress or you know of course it was a threat to the um the people of the United States to have individuals who were from the Indian culture perpetuating their culture. So it had a lot of reasons to it, but it was just so sad to see that this was somehow a feeling of being more civilized by stripping people of who they 
are and, and their background, their heritage and, and their culture. But these, those images for some reason really st stuck with me, seeing those same children after a, maybe a year or two years of being in a boarding school, having to lose who they are to become something that was considered the right way of being. So again, this book, it's, it's heartbreaking, it's depressing, but I hope everyone reads it because I myself, as I said, growing up, the education I got was significantly lacking in the experience of indigenous peoples. Everything seemed to be presented in a, a positive way and everyone was happy and Thanksgiving was this nice event of everyone coming together. But what was left out is all these atrocities that took place. And as I got older, I became more aware, but recognized that I still have a lot to learn. And even after reading this book, I have a lot to learn, but learned a lot in reading it and, and hope you will check it out too. Uh, that's An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. An Inconvenient Truth. I think that was the name of a documentary Al Gore had maybe 15, 16 years ago. One, really a big move in, in climate change and about the effects humans are having on the environment. And uh, I don't want to talk about that documentary, but just that, that concept of an inconvenient truth. Because reading this book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and I, I can't even understand saying it's just inconvenient, might minimize what, what people have gone through. But the reason why I present it that way is that if you hear the history of the United States in the whitewashed and the very sanitized version of it that makes everything seem beautiful and gloryful and from sea to shining sea and this land is my land, this land is your land. It's a funny um, song when you consider how uh, land was uh, done. It was This land is my land, this land is my land. But nonetheless, there is a lot of... Um, the story of, of our country, and really every country has their myth and mythology of how the country came to be that is going to put a positive spin on it. And so it can it's a lot easier if that story were true, that everything was done bright and it was all um, anyone who fought it was because they were being attacked and protecting and defending and all these wonderful ideals that we'd like to have. It would be much more pleasant if that were the truth and the full truth and nothing but the truth. However, we're missing a lot of the truth. And that's why I'm saying it's an inconvenient truth when you have this feeling and acceptance of a certain way of things being and then realizing it's not the reality. It doesn't feel good. And so we see a lot of backlash when you talk about these aspects of history because people want to believe the myth of their perfect country, perfect nation that never did anything wrong and is the beacon of good and hope and everything positive in the world, uh, all, not only in its own country, but everywhere. And we see the United States, I, I think it's done a lot of good things, but it's done a lot of bad and continues to do a lot of bad things that we have to understand and recognize if we want to be real and truthful and accept these inconvenient truths of the history and of the present. And so this is going to be true in really any situation that people always will, by default, want to feel good. That's just a basic of being a living organism. We're drawn towards things that make us feel good and move away from things that make us feel bad, which 
is very, very helpful as a heuristic and as approach as we approach life, but also even in smaller ways affects us negatively because we're more drawn towards things that make us feel good in the moment. Even when something might be much better for us long term, it could be harder to get us to do that thing if it doesn't feel as good in the moment. And that's one of the big challenges of life is to delay gratification, to do the hard things now, to get the benefits later, while also balancing that life also is about enjoying things in the moment as well. And so it's not only about delaying gratification for some payday later, we find a balance of doing things we enjoy in the moment and experiencing those things, but also doing things that will pay off down the line. So we are drawn towards doing something that feels good. So if I'm going to tell you the story about something, you want it to be a pleasant story. If you hear the story of the United States and it's the country you live in, and if you love that country, you want the history to be all good, that all good things happen, everything was fair and just. We fought against an unfair British empire and got freedom, and then we were all about liberty and justice for all and all these good things. It is much more pleasant to believe that that's the whole story. And I think there are ideals that have been followed to some degree, but never not fully. But there's also a lot, a lot of room for growth and a lot of things that we would have to actually acknowledge if we want to truly know our country and what has happened. And so that's the inconvenient truth about this situation. And I see this, this is a much, much, much smaller scale, but in relationships, people want everything to feel good. And then if one partner wants to complain about something and bring up something that's happened, the other person might say, oh, please, why, why do you have to mess it up? Whereas if it's the reality of that person's experience, that's part of the truth. It might be an inconvenient truth, but it is the truth. Or in families, sometimes a person might be the one who bears a lot of the emotions, or they're the one that's the peacekeeper. They're the ones that's making things okay. And as a result, they're often expected that even if they're not okay, to just be okay or say they're okay or swallow their feelings. Because if they're to share their actual feelings up, that's an inconvenient truth that messes things up. Everything was so calm and smooth until you came and messed it up with your feelings, your actual experience. And so in this case, it's not just about feelings, it's about actual things that happened and continue to happen in our history. And this brings up issues for people related to patriotism. What does it mean to love your country? And even really that can mean, what does it mean to love anything? And so sometimes people, it, to me, it's more of a nationalistic mindset, but there's a sense that your country is always right, is perfect, and nothing is wrong with it. And sometimes, you know, you hear people say, and I think it's a laughable and very, very childish argument to say, well, if you don't like something about this country, you should leave, which doesn't make sense because there's no one that likes everything about this country. And especially whoever that person is, when if they are political, which essentially let's say anyone is more left or right leaning, when the other party is in power, they want that person out of power. So at that moment, they don't like something about their country. So let's say if you are a Democrat, when Trump was president, you were saying, I don't want Trump to be president. So you didn't like something about the country. Did that mean you should go? And then now let's say if you're a Trump supporter, when Biden became president, you were like, I don't want Biden to be president. So you didn't like something about this country. Should you just leave? It doesn't really make sense to say, if you don't like something about this country, you should go. Same thing if about a house. Sometimes people say, well, if you don't like something about this house, just get out of the house. And it's much more complicated than that to just say, if you don't like something, you have to go. That's an extreme uh, in a home, like a dictatorship. And 
lack of any kind of democracy or any type of equality and egalitarianism. And in a country, the same thing. And especially we take it a step further when you don't like something about your country. It doesn't mean you don't love your country. It could actually mean you love it even more and want it to be better. Just like any thing, any person, even yourself, if you want to genuinely love something, you have to first genuinely know that thing or that person, meaning in reality. Um, we see the same idealization that we can see how people talk about their country as perfect and all good and no bad that people do when they idealize people in their lives, family members, parents, romantic partners, where they're not actually seeing the person, they're seeing some idealized image of them as all perfect, all good, never bad. Even people do this with parents. We'll talk about splitting, where it's one parent was all bad and one parent was all good. And don't ever say anything bad about the good one and don't ever say anything bad about the bad, good one. I said, I said it backwards. <laughs> don't say anything bad about the, the good one and don't say anything good about the bad one because they're perfectly good and bad. When really we recognize the reality is they both have some of both and maybe you liked one of them or loved one of them more but the reality is going to be much more complex and it's all good or all bad and so when we idealize someone and you might think well look at how much this person loves this person i actually saw the elvis movie last night very uh, bizarre segue it might sound like but you see these people i mean they were just people were going crazy for elvis and screaming for him and passing out for him and throwing their uh you know undergarments <laughs> onto the stage when he was performing but to, do you really think they, they knew him? And I would actually say they didn't. And because of that, although it was like a drug for him to be on stage and that hide that he experienced, it wasn't lasting. And sadly, it does seem that he, a lot of things were going on. We also see how poorly his manager was treating him and mistreating him and, and essentially abusing him and overworking him. But we also can see that he didn't have meaningful relationships because no one probably really knew him. You know, a movie is going to be a... Uh, just a story of his life. So I don't know how accurate it was. We see it seems like his wife, Priscilla at the time, was trying to love him, but he was too uh, addicted to so many things, including the fame and, and, and drugs and women and things of that sort that the relationship couldn't work out. She said in the movie it was the drugs. But nonetheless, he didn't let someone really know him to actually love him. The idealized love of screaming, adoring fans is not genuine love. And so if we have that same type of love for your country, that it's just this amazing, perfect, never say bad, never say wrong, never say anything bad in the history, in the present, it's only good. To me, that's not genuine love. That's a, a, a fallacy. We're tricking ourselves because there's something comfortable in that. There's something very comfortable in thinking the country that I live in is the best country in the world. It's never done anything wrong it's only done good things it continues to only do good things and that's that's it there's nothing else to it and that's the whole story and that's a very comfortable feeling you feel good you feel protected you feel like you're part of the right side of things it feels good in a lot of ways but this is where we talk about the inconvenient truth of the reality is that it's much more complex than that that it's not only good all in the past and present and future it is an imperfect thing, just like everything in the world is imperfect. From human beings to societies to countries to cultures, none of them are perfect. But 
making something perfect is very, very comforting because then you don't have to think about it anymore and you know it's all good. And we do this with people. We idealize a person and now anything they say is true and good and you can't challenge it or no one else should challenge it either. That's much more comforting than I like this person and I think they might have good ideas or good art or whatever it is that they do, but I will see them as a full human being, meaning that I also recognize the flaws. And so to me, to really love your country means to understand the good of it, but also the bad. Understand the good of what it's doing now and also the bad of what it's doing and try to, to change that because you love it, to try to make it better. And to understand its past, to see the wrongdoings that it's done, to also help repair those, but to see where you got to or how you got to where you are now to better understand it. Just like if you truly love someone in your life, a friend, family member, romantic partner, you want to genuinely see them in all their complexity. And actually what we recognize is that although, just like I was saying with Elvis, this this uh, hysterical reaction of a, a fan that's like so obsessed with you and you're like a god to them, it, it could feel like a drug. It might feel really good in the moment, but it's very fleeting. It's not a very lasting and good feeling. And what most people recognize that even if someone not to that level idealizes you, it feels good, but it also feels like a pressure. It doesn't feel very comforting. And you don't tend to feel very seen by someone who idealizes you. If someone just thinks everything you do is perfect and everything you've ever done is great and everything you're doing is the best it could have been, you don't actually feel like they're seeing you because you know everything you're doing is not perfect if you're being genuine. Usually what you end up seeing is actually someone like that might bond well with someone who's narcissistic, who wants to be seen as perfect and better than everyone else and never making a mistake. Um, those relationships usually end in disaster. We can leave that for another time. But it can feel good for that person in that moment or who has that mindset. But most people because they know they're not perfect, if someone sees them as perfect, it doesn't feel good. So genuine love is seeing a person for what they are, good, bad, and ugly. And to me, genuine love for your country means seeing someone, seeing it for what it is, good, bad, and ugly, the past and the present, and then trying to create a better future. And all that being said, I'm very grateful to have been born in the United States. If I had not been, if I was born in Iran, my life would have been very different in ways that um, would likely not be good at all. So again, when we notice or recognize something is not good, it doesn't mean we're now saying it's all bad or that it has some not good parts. It doesn't mean we're saying it's all bad. It's that we can see the good and the bad. That's more genuine, which means we'll have to acknowledge what might feel like some inconvenient truths. It's a lot nicer to just feel like everything is good and it always has been. Uh, but reading this book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, was a further glimpse and into the ugly history that is part of the United States of America. And it's an inconvenient truth, but a truth nonetheless. All right, let's get to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the last segment, I was talking about inconvenient truths when we try to understand um, our country and also individuals in our lives. And I did mention ourselves. And that's actually what I wanted to talk about in this last segment here, because when we try to understand ourselves better, even if we talk about self-love, self-compassion, the first step is to know something to love it. You can 
love something that you don't know, but that's just more of an idealization or an imagination. And actually, people do that with themselves. Things like narcissism to an unhealthy degree will, will create that or leads to that. But if we genuinely want to know ourselves and love ourselves, we have to actually see what's there. Now, what some people do is not necessarily that they idealize themselves, but what I recognize is that because of the experience of shame, we can be afraid to see something negative in ourselves. We can feel that it's not safe to see something negative because once we see something negative, we think that means that I'm bad or unlovable or not good. And so uh, to me, this is something that is created and developed early in childhood in our early experiences. And this is why I think it's so important for parents to not think that their role as a parent is to make my child become something, become someone a specific way. I do think it's important to have some values that you'd like to instill and, and to be aware of because you always have values, just sometimes you're not aware of what they are. So it's important to be aware of them. Actually, uh, uh, going back to what we're talking about today, even a country has values. It, it might not make them clear, but by its actions, it's uh, it, the diplomatic things it does, war, all those things that it does, it's going to actually reflect its values. So it's just whether or not we are conscious of those values. And so as a parent, I think it's good to have values, but not to think your child has to be a certain way, introverted or extroverted, uh, do well in school, do arts or don't do arts, be athletic, do a variety of things, or look a certain way. That's also a big one. We see a lot of shame that gets formed based on how people look. And so as a parent, to be aware that your role isn't to make your kid become something, it is important to have values and encourage them towards those things. But as far as who they are, how they look and things like how they identify or things like what they're interested in, what their personality is like, to not make them feel bad about how they are or who they are. Uh, often I get approached by parents working on something uh, with their child, let's say the child bites their nails or has some other type of issue. And one of the things I always reiterate is that, yes, we want to be aware of this issue. First and foremost, we want to see how it's affecting your child, because that's what matters most. If they're okay, we, we approach it very differently. But let's say even your child doesn't like it themselves, biting their nails or the effects of biting their nails, how it looks, or if people see them doing it or how their nails look afterwards. Um, but the most important thing for me, when we're looking at it from a framework is to make sure we don't make your child feel bad about this, that we don't make them feel bad about who they are because of this. doesn't mean we say biting your nails is good or good for you or we want to encourage it. But very quickly, parents can give the message to their child that this thing you're doing makes you bad or unlovable or not good or ugly. And sometimes even we think this is a way to encourage them. Very often parents will say things like, oh, uh, don't bite your nails. It's going to look so ugly if you bite your nails or it's going to bleed and look bad and people are going to look at it and see it's bad or people watch you doing it and think, oh, that's disgusting. And so we sometimes unfortunately think that the way to encourage someone towards doing good things is to shame them. But this doesn't work. When you shame someone, you rarely help them deal with the issue and you more than that, make them feel bad about themselves and who they are. 
So now it's not just biting your nails, it's an issue, it's who I am is disgusting or not good or that people won't like me because of who I am. And that to me is more important than even the biting the nails part of the situation. But so often we get fixated on, okay, biting nails is bad, I have to do everything uh, to make sure my child stops, including using tactics that might even see seem mean or not so nice, but it's going to help my child. And we can fool ourselves into thinking that I'm doing this purely out of love. But often what parents are doing is they are projecting their own anxieties onto the child. How does it look if my child has their fingers mangled up from biting it? Or if the people see them biting and think, oh, my child is nervous, and that means I'm a bad parent, or I'm making my child anxious or nervous, and we project those worries, or our own self as a child, oh, I felt like I was nervous, or I bit my nails, or I did this um, this kind of a behavior that people made fun of me for, or gave me negative attention, or my parents did. And so we project all those things, and we want our child to stop immediately because of that. And so it's not that we ignore it in a way that we pretend like it's not there, but we don't want to make them feel bad about that. And so to me, this is so important for parents to recognize how much value we give to a child by giving them value for just being who they are, and how much we take away from them when we make them feel bad about something that is out of their control, or maybe that very little control, or just about who they are and what they are. And the reason why I bring all of this up is because I, in, in doing therapy, my own personal experience and talking with many people in uh, just casual ways, you see how impactful this sense of shame can be in how people deal with themselves, how they love themselves, and how comfortable they are facing themselves genuinely. Because if you can easily go to a shameful place, it can feel very scary to find out something negative about yourself. Because your fear is that if there is something negative about you, now you become unlovable. And so we can be much more uh, prone to things like avoiding noticing mistakes, shortcomings, uh, avoiding feedback, avoiding conflict, because all of these things are not just a momentary threat. They are a threat to our very being at the core. Am I okay? Am I lovable? Is it okay for me to be the way I am? And so, as I was saying in the last uh, segment about inconvenient truths and looking at, let's say, the nation and being aware that there are inconvenient truths that we have to accept if we want to genuinely know our country and then to genuinely love our country, the same is true of ourselves. We are all imperfect, and that is okay. Being a human being means you are not going to be perfect. That's just not possible really for anything to be perfect even, but any living being to be perfect and any human being to be perfect. So we have to be able to accept that and we want to make sure we recognize that as parents to give that message to our children that it's okay to be flawed. It's actually the only way to be, um, is to be flawed. But if we grow up with this mindset that we shouldn't be, it's very scary to look at ourselves. And so what I think is so wonderful is when you see someone who, it's not that they think everything they do is perfect, they can recognize flaws or something they're doing, but with a sense of love, or maybe even laughing at themselves, but in a positive way of, oh, oh yeah, I'm doing that thing again, or yeah, I really keep doing this mistake, or my relationships, or whatever it might be. There is a openness, and there's a non-judgmentalness that makes it very easy for them, or easier, still might feel a little bit uncomfortable, to look at themselves genuinely and not be afraid of what they see. 
On the other side, when people are feeling shame, they very often are hiding things from themselves and then also hiding from other people because they think, well, if people see this part of me, they'll, they'll think I'm gross or disgusting or unlovable. They won't want to be my friend. They won't want to be my lover. They won't want to be whatever it might be. And so there's this anxiety and constant sense of fear of being exposed, of being seen. And what's so sad about that is that very often what they're afraid will be seen is not something that will make them unlovable. But because of that fear of being seen, they might do things that actually do push people away. So if you are afraid that because of, let's say, how emotional you are and you think that's too much or something about how you look uh, makes you feel bad about yourself and makes you unlovable, you might do things that won't let people close. Or if they get close, you push them away or act out. Uh, An extreme example of this is people who have extreme fears of abandonment and are afraid that no one will want to be with them. Very often they do things in their relationships that push people away. So uh, one of the more extreme diagnoses related to this would be borderline personality disorder. And one of the things that characterizes borderline personality disorder is extreme fears of abandonment. And the relationships these people have tend to be very, very chaotic and tumultuous and intermixed with um, idealization and devaluing the individual and things of that nature. But what you see, and it's very heartbreaking, is you see these individuals in their relationships where they really want the person, they want to be close and to love them, but they are so afraid of them leaving them that they react in certain ways. They get very angry. They might accuse, they might point fingers, they might insult all because they're afraid the person is going to go. So you can imagine if you are with someone and you say, they say, Hey, do you want to go to dinner? And you're like, yeah, sure. Let's go. But now they're doubting you want to go. And every minute, like, do you want to be here? Are, are you sure you want to be here? Oh, you want to be somewhere else. Do you want to be? Here? And if they're so threatened and so anxious about you wanting to be there by them asking you continually for this reassurance and acting in that way, it probably will make you less likely to want to be there because now you can't even enjoy that moment or enjoy this experience because it's constantly about proving you want to be there and reassuring them. And so in relationships, we see these behaviors get even more extreme at times where people are testing. Oh, let me see. And it's, it's sad again to see these types of tests because sometimes the test itself makes the person go away. So it's like, okay, let me do something really hurtful to the person because in that way, I'm going to test if they genuinely love me because they'll be willing to withstand this test or withstand me doing this thing, not recognizing that acting out in that way or acting in that way might push someone away and be like, I don't know if I can handle that if you're going to hurt me. And then in a self-fulfilling prophecy, the person thinks, oh, see, this was another person that wasn't going to love me and was going to go away. And now I know, and I knew no one could love me because of how I am, not realizing that it was them testing and pushing away. It was the doubt that created the result they were afraid of being true. So unfortunately, when we are afraid to recognize our own weaknesses or think it's unacceptable for us to have weaknesses. We don't look at ourselves genuinely because it's too scary. If we can have more compassion for ourselves and internalize this sense that as a human being, I'm going to have flaws, I'm going to have weaknesses, and actually I want to work on them. If we think of 
what we would think of as some ideal is that you recognize your imperfections, your weaknesses, and keep working on them your whole life. Uh, you know, if you look back five years ago and you don't think that you were kind of stupid in, in, a, in a loving way, that means that these five years you didn't learn that much. So you would hope that looking back five years, you feel like, you know what, I feel like I've learned a lot. I'm a lot more knowledgeable, wiser than I was five years ago. And so that means you today is going to be stupid compared to the you in five years from now. So of course you don't know things, you have weaknesses, you have areas to grow, things to learn, all sorts of things. And it doesn't mean that makes you bad today, but it makes you recognize that there's room to grow. And that's good. That actually uh, makes life work worth living. And if you're not growing, you're dying. You want to keep growing and recognizing that. But the only way you can do that is if you actually take a genuine look at yourself and be okay with those inconvenient truths about yourself that you know what, I'm I'm a good person, none of these things mean I'm bad, none of these things make me unlovable, but I have this insecurity that makes me act in this way. Or sometimes I react in this way that's kind of mean to loved ones or not that good. Or I keep being late to places and that's not good for me. Or I do this thing or that thing. None of them make me unlovable, none of them make me a bad person. But if I genuinely want to love myself, I want to genuinely look at myself, recognize the inconvenient truths, to first know and understand myself, and then also to see if I can work on those things. And so in therapy, this is something that I recognize that people have very different thresholds for how much they can handle hearing something about themselves that might not be so positive. Some people are ready, let, you know, bring it on. I want to hear it. Let's go. And for some people, you can see it's a lot harder and you have to be much more aware of how you present that in a way that they can handle so they don't fall apart. And it's a simultaneous thing of building up the sense of self-love and self-esteem, but also bringing up the issues that they're currently facing. They're happening in parallel often uh, so that they can learn about themselves better and then withstand and learn about those things. So we have to face those inconvenient truths about who we are because as human beings, we all have them. We all have these flaws. That's what makes us human. That's what makes us who we are. But we can continue to grow and recognize that's our responsibility in our life. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Amir here in the studio. Be kind and take risks. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.